The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, James Schrempfer, and on this episode, I will be joined by Father Anthony Chicana, St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, so glad you could join us this evening. I'm always happy to wade into controversies, James. <laughs> As traditional Catholics, we never seem to run out of them. <laughs> that, that is for sure. <laughs> on this episode tonight, we're going to be discussing uh, the controversy found in many traditional Catholic circles of Archbishop Lefebvre being consecrated by a supposed Mason, Cardinal Lignard. Okay. And uh, this is based on an article you put together in 2003, um, and sad to say it's something I often run into uh, here, at least in Minnesota, and I, I believe across the United States in general, particularly in the Home Alone group, this concept that Masonic bishops cannot validly ordain somebody. So perhaps to give us a little background on this, Father, um, how did you first come upon this, or where did you first uh, come upon this idea? And, well, uh, I was um, a member of the Society of St. Pius X in the 1970s, and we began an apostolate in the United States. I was ordained in uh, 1977, and there were some um, other uh, SSPX priests, Father Kelly and Father Sanborn and Father Dolan, who had preceded me coming to the United States. Also, Father Hector Bolduc, Father Gregory Post. Um, and uh, these uh, priests were in the process of establishing mass centers in different parts of the country. Uh, up to that point, the uh, Catholics who wanted to adhere to the traditional Catholic faith and wanted to go to the old mass generally would have to find a um, retired uh, diocesan priest or someone who is willing to make a break with his uh, diocese or with his religious order in order to take care of the spiritual needs of people who rejected the changes. So there were a number of mass centers, uh, a fair amount of mass centers actually uh, run by, uh, by priests like this. Also in the United States in those days, there were a number of um, uh, we could call them independent uh, traditionalist publications. It was not so easy to get uh, information around in those days as it is now. Uh, you had uh, uh, a number of small uh, publications. There was the um, Remnant. There was uh, Veritas. There was Patrick Henry Omler's uh, newsletter, uh, Interdom. There was uh, a publication that an outfit called the Orthodox Roman Catholic Movement uh, put out. So there, there were all of these uh, different uh, small publications. In um, uh, As the society uh, and priest of Archbishop Lefebvre started to um, work in the United States in, in uh, different uh, parts of it, there were... Um, certain writers and certain controversialists who uh, did not really like uh, what we were doing for one reason or another. Uh, some maintained that, uh, well, our apostolate was somehow illegitimate, and that, of course, would be the topic for a Home Alone show, because uh, we didn't uh, observe the, the uh, supposedly the various points of canon law. Uh, others didn't like the... Um, uh, theology of different members of the Society of St. Pius X. So uh, some of the uh, uh, lay people 
during that particular era, uh, put forth the uh, objection against uh, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre, against the validity of his uh, priestly ordination, and against the um, uh, subsequent validity of his uh, Episcopal consecration. So they uh, started to um, agitate uh, against this on uh, the basis of some documents, or actually only one document that uh, we will talk about, and started to criticize the, uh, or rather to say that the, the priests, Archbishop Lefebvre was not a real bishop, and so that those of us, his, his uh, priests who had been ordained by him, were not real priests either. So uh, that was something that uh, started to that was something that started to be spread in the United States in the early days. Um, the accusations were of masonry were made against um, uh, Achille uh, Cardinal Leonard. He was the Archbishop of Lille, which was the uh, city where Archbishop Lefebvre was uh, born and was ordained. And he was, in fact, one of the leading modernists at uh, the Second Vatican Council. The um, uh, antagonists, as it were, in the United States uh, were uh, a guy named Hugo Maria Kellner, who was a chemist. He lived in upstate uh, New York. There is uh, a publication in Kentucky called Veritas. And there was, of course, the, uh, it seems, uh, e eternally living Hutton Gibson, who also promoted this particular idea. So they, they uh, argued that since um, uh, Masonry despised uh, the Church, uh, those who were Masons among the clergy would naturally want to destroy the priesthood by withholding the required sacramental intention that they should have when uh, conferring holy orders. So the, the, the idea was that uh, all of these, uh, any uh, ordination uh, that was performed, a consecration performed by a mason, was automatically to be considered either invalid or doubtful. So uh, that was uh, that was the story. That was the beginning of the controversy, and that was actually the the, the first that uh, I had heard of it in uh, actually in the United States. And and it amazes me, Father, as someone that grew up even in the indult in the nineties, that was a common theme we heard around the, the table, kitchen table, so to speak, of, you know, Cardinal Leonard is a, is a Mason, Archbishop Lefebvre's orders are, you know, questionable. And mm -hmm. uh, we don't even, I mean, I can't trace back a time pinpoint a source of where it even came from. It just seems like a, I would say one of those myths that belongs in Catholic mythology that I, I don't know where it has a basis. So I guess, you know, so we could talk about that a little bit, but it, it's sort of a myth is right. It's sort of like alligators in the sewers. Uh, you know, of New York City. So it's it, it's one of those um, those urban legends. Um, right. The, um, so, uh, I, the interesting thing is, though, that you you point out that you've heard about it in uh, your particular milieu in the um, uh, traditionalist movement. Uh, in Europe, it is simply not an issue. Uh, I always found that very interesting. That yeah, sure, okay, oh, he was a Mason, but you know, so what. So that, that's the the different uh, reaction of um, uh, American trads and continental trads. Uh, it's uh, um, uh, completely different. <laughs> well, that's quite interesting uh, perspective there. I didn't realize that uh, that this was only found in the America's Wild West, so to speak. Yeah, but, that's uh, right. <laughs> where did where did this originate, Father? You know, where did this idea or this concept initially come up, or where's the source? Okay, Cardinal well, Lina? what happened is uh, it keep, uh, kept on popping up. So in um, uh, the early 1980s, we decided to get uh, Dr. Ramakumaraswamy. There's a mouthful of a name for you. Uh, he was a convert from um, from Hinduism. His father actually was a great Hindu theologian. Uh, if you can conceive of such a thing. And Rama turned out to be a pretty good writer, so he said he would research the history of this. Well, the um, uh, story 
supposedly came from uh, a couple of places. We were told that, well, it was something Archbishop Lefebvre himself had admitted that his, his uh, uh, ordaining and consecrating bishop was a Mason, that it appeared in an Italian publication uh, called Chiesa Viva, and a, a certain issue of that, and that it also um, was in a book by a French right-wing writer uh, named the Marquis de la Francerie. Uh And it was found in his book, Pontifical Infallibility. So um, Rama uh, investigated this a little bit, and what he uh, discovered is that the article in uh, Chiesa Viva was based on uh, the story in, uh, the, in the book by the Marquis de la Francerie in Pontifical Infallibility. It was in, in uh, uh, text and then a little bit in a footnote. And that Lefebvre's uh, admission or his comment about it was based on what he had seen in Chiesa Viva. So what happened is the story came from one source. It came from the writer, the French writer, the Marquis de la Francerie, and uh, he was a right-wing monarchist uh, writer in uh, France, and he had a um, he, he had written an awful lot of stuff. He written an awful lot of stuff. Um, he said uh, in this this book. Uh, pontifical infallibility that, well, uh, the the story was this, that um, Cardinal Leonard was a member of these Freemasonic lodges um, and that he had been initiated in a lodge in Cambrai in France uh, and then he, then the Francery talked about um, Leonard's supposed career. Um, now, what happens, though, is you look at this, and there's no source for it, uh, except uh, an anonymous man whom the Marquis de la Francerie, uh identifies as Monsieur B. He doesn't give us anything more than that, and says that, well, this guy was a uh, uh, had received some sort of a, a papal honor. He was a, a papal chamberlain, something like that. So there's no source for the story. It's just this, this, these assertions that the Marquis de la Francerie makes in his, his book. Well, the thing is that um, the Marquis de la Francerie is not exactly, if you look at his other writings, he does, doesn't exactly inspire um, uh, credibility, at least as, as, as far as I'm concerned. For instance, um, one of his ideas is that the kings of France uh, actually were descendants of King David in the Old Testament and related to our Lord and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that that was one of the little theories that uh, he sought to prove. Uh, the other, um, uh, another theory that he had was that the um, certain members of the French aristocracy were actually part of one of the lost tribes of, of Israel. And so they could uh, claim a, uh, a ancient uh, heritage via that. And the proof for it was a lot of them had big noses. So that showed that they were Jews and, and descended from the tribes of Israel. Okay. So oh, then, come on, Father. That's got to be solid. <laughs> some of the stuff you say you can't make it up, right? Oh, and <laughs> the, uh, another uh, thing is um, that he was uh, he was a uh, great believer in um, private revelation, sort of mystical futurist re uh, revelation. So that was another thing, and that you would have a great monarch who would uh, come at the end of time from France, of course, one of these uh, descendants of um, King David. Then uh, another thing was that he uh, ended up a a great believer in this idea that Cardinal Siri was actually the real Pope. And this was the explanation for the situation in the church. Now, the thing is that, that that might be a good topic to cover uh, sometime, but um, it shows the, the uh, level of, of someone who's, who's credulous, who will believe and repeat, uh, you know, just about anything. So this guy was the, um, 
I would say the uh, equivalent of sort of a French Malachi Martin. And I never took seriously any of the other stuff that he wrote. And then, uh, so the the whole idea that one should rely on impugning uh, on 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 him to tell us that Cardinal Leonard was uh, Mason and that we should invalidate Lefebvre's orders based on that is mm, uh, a, a quite a stretch, I would say. You know, as as, as uh, they say. Uh, you know, I, uh, in Brooklyn, I've got a bridge to sell you, you know, and, and uh, this would be the bridge. Here in Cincinnati, it would be the Roebling Bridge, which was designed by the same guy who designed the Brooklyn Bridge. But that's another issue. So, in other words, you're not talking about a reliable source here for the factual assertion, okay? And even there, this, this unreliable source is quoting a anonymous source to begin with. So you have yeah, sure. uncertainty. Uh, so there's not much of a basis there. How much for the supposed deathbed confession where uh, Cardinal Leonard supposedly admitted to uh, invalidating all these orders or destroying the church? There's many various quotes out there. Uh, is there any basis for that particular? Well, the thing uh, is, I've quote? never seen any basis for it. But if he's going to, my first question is, if he's going to do a deathbed confession, what is the confessor doing breaking the seal? You know? <laughs> So that's the, the 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 first thing the priest confessor is breaking the seal, and um, uh, secondly, there's no way to verify anything like that. I mean, the um, that's uh, the equivalent of a um, one of Rudyard Kipling's just so stories. You know that it 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 uh, just happens to prove uh, some sort of a some sort of a crazy point. So there's no documentation for it. Right, because as far as I know, I, I've never even heard the priest name. Yeah, know, I, so, you know, it's may, maybe it was Mr. B's brother. You know, maybe it was Father <laughs> B. Uh, so <laughs> the whole, uh, or I don't know, maybe it was one of the descendants of David or something um, who was taking time off from being the future king of France. So the whole thing is, is ridiculous. And it's this the, the idea, it just shows you... Um, uh, how uh, uh, credulous, really, some trads are, you know, to believe something like this on the basis of a um, uh, uh, on the basis of uh, something that's un- undocumented, a secret witness in a book by a guy in France who's basically a crank, you know. So, uh, <laughs> well, scary. Those unbelievers. Those, those people that like to, to deal in the conspiracy world and, and just look for anything and everything. You know, let's just take the worst case scenario. Let's say, you know, Cardinal Leonard was actually a Freemason. Does that, even if he was a Freemason, does that automatically question the orders that he confers? Okay. So the thing is that, that what you have to do here is uh, you you have a theological question here that has has two points. You want to find out uh, is a um, uh, in the case of uh, Leonard uh, must his um, uh, conferrals of holy orders be automatically considered doubtful or invalid? Okay. So what you do is is um, you make a theological argument, and that would. Uh, to get to that point, first of all, there's there, there's a general principle that you have to see whether or not that's true. That uh, if uh, automatically, if uh, a bishop is a mason, his sacraments, his sacramental intention has to be presumed doubtful. Okay, so that's the general principle you have to find out. We've already talked about the second thing, uh, Achille Leonard. Uh, you know the, whether or not he was a mason. So the thing is that you go to the general principle and. You have to see whether, in fact, uh, this is verified by the teachings of uh, Catholic theology. And uh, the fact that the conclusion you clearly come up with is uh, that it's not. And, and what's kind of at work here is a uh, what I would call sort of a, a lay type of understanding of, of, um, uh, of theology where, where people are going to making principles up. So the, 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 the key, then, is if we assume he was a Mason, is the general principle true that whenever a bishop is a Mason, his sacramental intention must be presumed doubtful and all his ordinations presumed doubtful. So when you go to... 
um, examine the case in terms of Catholic moral theology, Catholic sacramental theology, Catholic dogmatic theology, the first thing that you find out is a general principle that um, sacraments, when they're conferred by a Catholic minister, including holy orders, have to be presumed valid until invalidity is proven. And this will also come up um, uh, you know, when we uh, uh, again return to the question of um, Archbishop uh, Tuck's um, Episcopal consecrations. So the idea is that in, in uh, 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 sacramental theology, the way that it operates is that your, uh, if you uh, perform an, a sacramental act, the validity of it is always presumed until the contrary is proven. Don't most lay people, I mean, even, even subconsciously realize this because uh, when we look at few marriages, marriages are always presumed to be valid, even as a lay person. You know, that's why you go to a annulment court uh, yeah, to sure. see whether or not there was, the invalidity has to be proven. Validity takes the presumption. Uh, that's something I always grew up with. It was just assumed. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and, and the idea is that uh, we're rational creatures and that our... Uh, actions that that uh, our mind is uh, what's in our head is presumed to be in conformity with our actions when we perform a certain action. So that's why uh, you know if if that works um, for something like a sacrament, it also works, let's say, for a bad action. You know that that the um, uh, if you are uh, uh, you know uh, accused of of murdering someone. The idea is is that um, you have a uh, and uh, you know you were seen with a gun and pointing the gun at the person. It's uh, presumed that that's something that you intended to do, right? Because you have you have an external action, and that's how we normally operate as human beings. So it's a general principle. Well, the external action manifests the internal intention. Yeah, sure, and that's okay. it for. Uh, in general, and then um, uh, in general, in uh, civil and church law, and uh, in sacramental theology as well. Because when we look at the questioning the validity of Archbishop Lefebvre's uh, consecration, the only defect that you know one could even surmise would be the intention of the minister, because if there was any problem with the matter or the form, somebody right there at the ceremony, which was quite public, would have objected right there and then. Sure. And uh, that's how it works. That's what a master of ceremonies is for. That's what all the people around a bishop are for when he confers uh, um, when he confers the sacrament. So you have the the him performing this or uh, administering the sacrament with a um, uh, you know with matter and form, and the uh, when he he does that with something like an ordination, he's uh, automatically presumed. To intend what the right means, and the theologians all say that this is certain theological doctrine. So it's not something that you can blow off. Uh, this is, uh, uh, you know, found in the moral and sacramental theology manuals. And, and does this include, let's say, you know, someone that is a heretic or schismatic? Even would would this presumption uh, still be included for someone of that nature? And I think the answer to that is no, and if you just, uh, well, well, the presumption is, is, uh, is there even for a heretic or an apostate or even for an unbeliever, because everyone has learned, um, you know, the principle, of, well, you know, um, the, uh, someone is dying, wants to become a Christian, and um, uh, wants, the, wants the sacrament of, of baptism, Okay. Uh, say that he is one of these uh, long-nosed uh, Jews that the Marquis de la Franqui is worried about, okay? But there's another okay. uh, another Davidic long-nosed Jew there, and uh, the uh, first guy says to him, hey, come on, I, I want to be uh, baptized. I always want to be a Christian. So uh, here's what you do. You pour the water on my head, and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And so the second long-nosed guy says, okay, uh, you know, I will do this. The fact that 
the second guy is uh, a devout Jew or a devout Mohammedan or whatever, um, then he, he doesn't have the faith, but he simply has the intention to perform uh, this particular rite. And uh, the first guy then is validly baptized and becomes a Christian. So that's a principle that we all uh, learned. Okay? So the. the, so the, the student- this Jew would not even need to believe in the effects of the sacrament. No, no, not at all. And and the reason for that underlying principle is this, that the sacraments uh, our Lord instituted as means of salvation, and he wanted to keep the bar, as it were, as low as possible so we could get into heaven. So that's why there's only this minimum required when it comes to the confection of a sacrament. So even someone who doesn't have the faith, or who is a heretic or an apostate, uh, it doesn't um, uh, it doesn't annul that, okay? Because the stuff in the intellect, um, the the uh, you know adherence and uh, understanding certain things and adhering to them, in the intellect has nothing to do with an act of the will by which you're you're performing a certain action. Okay, so the thing is that that it's just this this um, a lower bar to make the reception of a sacrament, valid reception of the sacrament, ultimately uh, as easy as possible because they're intended for our salvation. So how would how would an intention be defective? Well, it, it would only be in a a case where the minister of the sacrament makes an act of the will, uh, say uh, not to or do what the church does. So uh, internally, he uh, um, says, I intend not to do what the church does. Or he says, I intend not to ordain this particular person. So there, there was a, uh, there's actually a um, uh, case of that where a bishop in uh, somewhere in Latin America in the 1700s, I believe, announced that, well, if anyone in the uh, class of people he was going to ordain was of mixed Indian blood, he was uh, withholding his intention to uh, ordain from them, from that person. Okay? So that would be an okay. example. Uh, that would be an example of it. But uh, even there, it's, it's uh, externally manifest. So, but he would have to make an act of the will. Right, uh, he be, and when he makes the act of the will, he intends not to do what the church does, and not even to perform a sacred rite as regards that person, so that invalidates it. So the key here would be he external this bishop in Latin America, he externally manifested his his intention not to perform the act. In this yes, that's case. correct. Uh, that's correct. But you can't have it, you know, where theoretically where the, the uh, a bishop does not externally manifest that and goes through the ceremony, but the there's never a presumption that that happens, and that's what the Leonardists uh, want to create. They want to create a a, a, a presumption that uh, well, uh, if you have a, a someone who is a Mason, uh, that well his his orders uh, his ordinations can't be valid. So the the but the invalid intention like this this flips the general principle and uh, on its on its head and uh, the uh, rule that, that cardinal uh, gaspari uh, laid a, laid down in his his fairly famous treatise on holy orders is that the minister is never presumed uh, uh, to have a, uh, an intention of not ordaining someone there's always the uh, any he uh, says the he invokes the uh, general uh, principle that no one is presumed evil unless he is proven as such. Uh, as, and uh, as regards validity uh, or invalidity, that has to be clearly demonstrated. So you can see that um, the already when we get into the, the uh, theology behind the, the Leonard issue, that um, the people who have, have fallen for this uh, have uh, turned the Catholic theological principle on its head. Well, uh, before we go on, I'd like to remind our listeners that they're listening to Trad Controversies on the Restoration Radio Network. 
Uh, I'm your host, and I've been joined tonight by Father Anthony Chicada from St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, discussing the controversy of Archbishop Lefebvre being consecrated by Cardinal Lignard, supposedly a Freemason, and what are the sacramental principles that we have to follow. And we'd like to remind you that this is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, and all rights are reserved and duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission usually can be easily, very easily obtained by writing to mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, just to sum up a little bit there, presuming that someone had the a faulty intention would be also presuming them to uh, doing sacrilege, would it not? Uh, yeah, it, it, because it would obviously be a misuse of the sacred thing, and uh, uh, a, and then it would be also a sin of injustice, um, uh, in several senses, a sin of injustice against the person being ordained, and uh, uh, another grave sin of injustice against the um, uh, persons who would presume to... Um, uh, benefit spiritually from the, the um, uh, ministry of the priest who had been invalidly ordained. So I mean, a very, very grave sin. So, so for for someone that believes this and just says, "Well, it's my opinion, and I can hold my opinion," this does have repercussions uh, insofar as how they are going to cause other people to view this person in in the in the public. Whether you know he'd be dead or not, he's still entitled to a good name, is he not? Sure, yeah, that, that uh, it, it, indeed he is. And to say something like that, you know, on the basis of which it has been said, uh, is um, is a, a grave injustice to uh, those people who have uh, been ordained by Archbishop Lefevre. It's a um, uh, you know that it's um, something that is um, obviously of a, a, a very, very grave charge. And, and so these, uh, these traditional Catholics that have come up with these theories, have they tried to uh, research the theology, sacramental theology, or the principles behind this? Uh, have they put anything forward, um, or are they completely going off the cuff from years and years ago? Well, <laughs> the thing is that I've read tons of sacramental theology, this is this is uh, what I uh, teach, and I started uh, actually doing some extensive reading into it because of in, in the uh, 1980s because of the question of the tuck consecrations, and I wanted to find out what all the theological principles behind that were. So uh, one of the uh, lies that uh, Father Kelly spread about tuck was that well tuck withheld his intention. Uh, at some point, uh, you know, in performing these consecrations. As with the Leonard thing, there's no factual basis for it. But uh, since I'm a fairly tenacious person, when I decided to research the Tuck consecrations, I thought I would re uh, research this question of sacramental intention, uh, intention and attention required for the conferral of the sacraments. And I didn't... Uh, just pick up one book and look it up. I read my way through several libraries, uh, through the moral and sacramental theology sections of uh, uh, several seminary and Catholic university libraries. And I also read my way through the own, my own considerable uh, collection of books. On, and all is on this question of attention and intention in the conferral of the sacraments, in addition to the question of, of proofs, which the anti-Tuck people were uh, beefing about. So, uh, and never once did I see uh, any theologian lay down the principle that, well, if you have a Masonic bishop, uh, his uh, sacraments are to be presumed invalid. No one said that. No one. And uh, I've challenged these people who have come up with this stuff. I ran into um, one of them, ran into uh, one of the um, monks of, or the uh, friars of uh, uh, Father or Bishop Louis Vizelis, 
And in fact, the guy is a bishop, uh, uh, was consecrated a bishop by Vizelis, uh, Giles Butler. So I ran into him in the airport, and um, uh, I said, look, um, where is the theological proof for this? That was sort of my conversation beginner. Um, that, uh, you know, can you give me a, a citation for it? You people have been saying this for years. Uh, I don't want your opinion. I want a page number in a theology book that tells me this. And of course, they well, can't come up with it. Well, you must be well noted in public then for starting very light conversations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, when but, people say, <laughs> when I run into someone who has caused a little trouble, or has caused a lot of trouble, and who says things that are um, uh, theologically and canonically stupid, and things that have hurt people, I have no hesitation in in um, uh, in letting them have it, <laughs> so, or, or, or in trying to pin them down. And the thing is that if you make an assertion about some grand principle in theology, well, where is it? You know, where is it? So that I mean, uh, and. and uh, so in all of these years, from the early 1970s right up till now, 2015, none of these clowns who have uh, said that the Masonic um, uh, Masonic bishop uh, uh, cannot uh, validly ordain or is presumed not to validly ordain people, none of these clowns have come up with a reference to a recognized theological text. They've made it up. And, and if we go back into history, Father, is there any sort of historical precedent we can also pull to uh, look at this through? Uh, similar to a court case, they always go back to preceding cases of similar nature and go, well, this is how the judge rules in this case. Is there any case in the history of the Church which is similar to what we are looking at in this hypothetical question uh, that would give us some precedent? Yeah, and that's a, that's a very interesting uh, question, and you're right, it does give us a pre- uh, precedent. The um, masonry in, in France, historically, uh, was loaded with, with clergy in the 18th century, with Catholic clergy. And uh, um, the um, uh, one writer, John Manor, said that um, in the uh, year 1789, which is the year of the Revolution, one quarter of the Masons in France were members of the clergy. Now they had a, uh, you know, they had various reasons for belonging to Masonry, various misunderstandings about it. Some of them, but some of them in, weren't for the for the bad stuff. The uh, biggest. Uh, example of uh, a mason was uh, the was uh, uh, Talleyrand, and uh, Talleyrand was uh, a member of a noble family, and uh, like a second son or something like that. He uh, his his father got him appointed to a position in the church. He became a bishop, and um, after he he was a member of the Masonic lodges. He supported uh, the French Revolution. Uh, we have the name of his lodge. Um, we know where he belonged, etc. He set up, helped the revolutionaries set up uh, what was called the Constitutional Church in France. So Talleyrand and another guy named Goebel uh, consecrated the first bishops for this, this Constitutional Church, uh, which the revolutionaries, leftist revolutionaries, wanted to use to replace the Catholic Church, and control. So to make a long story short, he did this in 1791. Eventually, Napoleon came along, and the um, uh, ten years later, he signed an agreement with uh, the Pope uh, to settle the question of uh, what had happened to the Church in France. And then the Pope appointed 13 of the bishops who had been consecrated by Talleyrand to head restored Catholic dioceses in France. So the Pope obviously had no problem with it. And in fact, one so, of the so worst the, ones, uh, the, the, uh, the, the real classic case of this, was the Bishop of Strasbourg, um, uh, right on the, in Alsace, right on the border. Uh, he, his name was Monsignor Sourine, S-A-U-R-I-N-E. He was a member of the worst Masonic Lodge in France. That was the Grand Orient. 
And people who know even a little bit about masonry know how awful and how vile the Grand Orient is. In fact, he was one of the governing members of it. But nevertheless, the Pope uh, appointed him uh, when the Concordia was signed to, to be Bishop of Strasbourg. So we had a mason consecrated by a mason that was appointed to an office in the church by, by Pope Pius VII. Yeah, yeah. So it, the thing is that you can't uh, say that there's a presumption then of invalidity, because if there had been, the Pope wouldn't have appointed the guy. And then the other thing that you have to look at is you say, okay, there are 13 of these bishops who were appointed, and... Um, uh, who had, had, uh, were consecrated by this, this Mason, and some of them uh, were clergymen who also had Masonic connections themselves, that subsequently they ordained priests and they consecrated bishops. So if you accept the Leonardist principle uh, that um, is, 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 was being spread around in the United States, that would call into doubt the uh, orders of uh, the the most of the clergy in France because you don't know where it comes from, and if you want to go beyond that, if you want to say with a mason you don't have a presumption of uh, correct intention, well, I mean that would also uh, reduce to toast the baptisms that were performed by the lower clergy, because if a mason can't have a correct uh, sacramental intention uh, for holy orders, he can't have one for baptism either. So there are an awful lot of unbaptized babies and uh, unordained priests in France. So once you 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 get to the uh, you, you start working out the um, consequences of this insane principle, that's what you end up with. And and when I was reading your article, Sacramental Intention in Masonic Bishop, which summarizes this in detail, you know, I came across the name Cardinal uh, Rampola and. Mm-hmm. Going back to my indoor days, even as a younger younger uh, teenager, I remember hearing you know how he was a Mason and the uh, Emperor of Austria vetoed his election, and, and then we had Pope Pius X elected in his place, and the Emperor of Austria had vetoed it because he knew Cardinal Rampolo was a Freemason. Mm-hmm. So here we have a clear case of a Cardinal as a Mason or. or at least that's the story that I've gotten over the years. Mm-hmm. Did he constitute one? Is there any historical precedent surrounding? Well, him? here's here's actually the story. The reason that he was he was vetoed by um, Francis Joseph, the emperor, was not because of the Masonic connection, but because he had, as as the Secretary of State, he had forbidden the ecclesiastical burial of a son of of the emperor, um, uh, who had committed suicide. So there wasn't a direct Masonic connection there, but uh, it is um, said that he was a member of the lodge at Einsiedeln in Switzerland. There's a pilgrimage place, very famous pilgrimage monastery in Switzerland, uh, the Benedictine Monastery of Einsiedeln. And there was a lodge across from the monastery that he was uh, a member of. And, uh, you know, there was Masonic, Masonic regalia, supposedly, that was found when he died, etc. So the... Uh, the thing is, though, that uh, if you adopt the crazy principle of uh, invalid Masonic orders, if there's a suspicion of someone being a Mason, well, uh, in the case of uh, Rampola, it also uh, makes toast out of a quarter of the bishops consecrated in the United States. Because when I was researching this article, I came across a, um, um, a, a table that was published of um, the bishops' lineages in the United States. And a quarter of them descended directly uh, from, uh, from Cardinal Rampola. So, um, you know, including a lot of very prominent American bishops. So if you admit the principle, uh, that's what you end up with. So it's, it's, it's a... Um, uh, it's a crazy thing once you get into it. <laughs> so it's, historically, we, we've seen definitely seen no evidence, or we've seen evidence quite to the contrary um, yeah. of this absurd principle of, well, he's a Mason, so therefore he must have had a, a faulty intention. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we could definitely put this one uh, in, in, into the storybook of Catholic mythology to read for uh, bedtime fairy tales. Right? 
I think so. Uh, I, or campfire stories or something like that. It's, uh, this, as I say, the same uh, level as the, the urban legends, as the uh, alligators in the sewers. That this is one that uh, we have to flush down the sewer as well, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, Father, I think that, that pretty much covers what we wanted to go over tonight. Was there anything you wanted to add to this? Any other thoughts? Well, yeah, I'd like to just make the general point um, uh, about uh, the issues that we face as uh, traditional Catholics, that uh, to resolve uh, issues like this that seem to be a little difficult, the um, guiding star has to be principles that you actually find in in Catholic theology. And it's not... um, uh, always necessarily easy to um, uh, find out what those principles are, but that has to be our, our uh, guiding star in terms of how we're supposed to think and uh, how we're supposed to act. When it comes to something like this, um, this uh, uh, issue of um, uh, supposed Masonic ordinations, when it comes to the question of the uh, issue of uh, the question of, of, of the Pope, the nature of the Church, all of these other things that uh, as, as Catholics we're supposed to adhere to what the Church teaches and we're supposed to make a, a good effort to find out uh, what she does teach. And it's not doing that as, as one of the... Um, phenomenon in the traditionalist movement that uh, has led to a lot of disasters and an awful lot of tears. So uh, it, it, it's a question of understanding where we should look to resolve these issues. And, and Father, having come from the adult and, and went down many rabbit holes, just in, in my own experience, in, in reading your articles and other good authors' articles, there was always footnotes. There was always quotes from actual text. Uh, reference material one could go to verify and, you know, check to see whether or not this was Catholic Church's principles. And, you know, having gone through Home Alone material, you don't find those footnotes. You don't find the the theological authors quoted uh, in their articles. And uh, would you agree that really to understand the, or to understand how to take the credibility of your author, you really have to check his footnotes. Yeah, the uh, it, there was um, one actually uh, Novus Ordo Cardinal who was I forget who it was. He was known as as uh, a scholar of uh, some note, and he said his question all the time when someone made an assertion uh, in an article was "Dove scritto?" "Dove scritto?" Which is Italian for "Well, where is it written?" In other words, what's your 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 source for this particular assertion? And that's always a good um, uh, that's always a good principle to follow to look for uh, uh, to find out what the church teaches uh, and um, be guided there. Well, I guess we either have that father or we have uh, the, the Mister B or the Father B. Those reliable <laughs> sources. <laughs> I guess so. Sometimes for a lot of people, that's a lot more fun, you know. So the. Uh, uh, you know the stories about those big noses and the, the Davidic kings of France and the great monarch and uh, Basiri and everything. That's that's all kind of very exciting. But um, uh, really, to preserve the faith, I think we have to look elsewhere. Well, Father, I really appreciate your time tonight and going through this with us. Is there any news at St. Gertrude the Great Church you'd like to share with us at this time? Well, uh, let's see. We we put up a very cute video of. Um, uh, our um, kids doing this spring program, our kindergartners doing a oh, where, oh, where is my little dog gone? So you can see that on the SGG website. I also put up a um, uh, video, a 10-minute video of our young organist here doing the famous Bach, Toccata, and Fugue in uh, D minor. So that's it's uh, quite an accomplishment. It's a very uh, difficult piece of music. Since I'm an organist myself, topics like that are uh, rather uh, near and dear to my heart. Ascension is tomorrow, and uh, a week from uh, Saturday, we have the Vigil of Pentecost, where we'll be doing confirmations and uh, have uh, the, uh, I believe as well, uh, uh, baptism. And our uh, liturgical season, where we have... Um, 
the more elaborate ceremonies that will uh, end the Sunday after um, Corpus Christi with uh, uh, outdoor procession and with our first communicants. So please keep them in your prayers that they uh, remain faithful to the graces uh, they've received, they will have received in both confirmation and in the Eucharist. We certainly will, Father. You enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks very much. God bless you all. Thank you, Father. We'll talk to you again next month. All right. Bye-bye. If you have any questions for Father Chicana or feedback on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at mail at truerestoration.org, and we will pass along your questions or comments to Father Chicana. We would also take a moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who help make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even simply an Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am James Rupper. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.